0: It's no fun to lose things, whether it's your job, your heart, or your email password. That sudden jolt of panic, the retracing of steps, the last realization that sinks in when you know it's gone. On this episode of Selected Shorts, authors including Lauren Groff help us deal with things that go missing. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Hold on to your hat or you might lose that too. And stay with us so we can find you. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Sure, you can lose your wallet. That's easy. Happens all the time. Once in a while, you even find someone else's wallet, and there's that thrill when you read the name on their driver's license, Harold E. Perkins. And you imagine being the hero, calling them up and saying, Mr. Perkins, I have your wallet. It's exciting to find something, but mostly you're gonna be on the losing side. You can lose your words, then your peace of mind, then your standing, your name, your lease on life, and finally, your mind. It's a slippery slope, but it happens. I know, I've stunned you into horrified silence. So sorry about that. There's a lot of potential loss out there, but as temporal beings, we're kind of set up for it. As Mary Oliver told us in her poem, In Blackwater Woods, you must be able to do three things to live in this world. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. And that's the direction we're taking on this selected shorts titled, You Lost It. We'll hear stories about all kinds of things you can lose objects, opportunities, sanity, a sense of yourself. In one story, the loss is a consequence of a deliberate action. In another, The loss is elemental, something people learn to face in the process of living their lives. And in the third, that loss comes about through supernatural means. Oh, in case anyone thinks they know where this is going, I'll give you a spoiler. Not one story is about death. That would be too easy. If you want stories about death, wait for our episode called Happiness and Fun. Just kidding. Our first piece is by the writer Jack Gems. Gems is the author of the novel My Only Wife, and short story collections including False Bingo. This story about an unpredictable tete-a-tete in a coffee shop showcases both her wit and her way with unusual circumstances. And while there are things lost and found in this story, to say more would give it all away. It's read by the stand-up comic and actor Helen Hong. She has appeared on series including The Unicorn and Silicon Valley and is a regular on the public radio show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Here she is performing Jack Jim's story any other.
1: He found her already seated at the coffee shop. It's so nice to finally meet you, he held out his hand. Bethany paused before accepting. I'm Keith, he said once her fingers were wrapped in his and laughed at himself. Of course, (laughs) you know that. I'm sorry, may I? He gestured to the chair across from her. Bethany nodded, wondered why he didn't get himself a cup of coffee first. No use in wasting time, so I'll just ask, he said. Have you made a decision? Bethany responded honestly. She shook her head. Good, then I can still convince you. Keith scooted his chair forward. I know it's a family heirloom, but if you keep it locked away in storage, What difference does it make if you technically own it or someone else does? If you sell it to me, you can visit it. I can loan it to you. We could even agree that you can buy it back at any time. Bethany wondered why it mattered so much to him. That he wanted it so very badly made her want to refuse him the satisfaction. How much are you willing to pay? She asked. Keith blinked rapidly. Well, we discussed $50,000. Bethany frowned. She had learned to do this during negotiations of any kind. Keith filled his lungs. But I'm prepared to go up to $75,000. He looked down at her coffee cup now, ready to wait for her response. Would you get me a refill, she asked. She enjoyed this power. She held it tight. Keith jumped up. Of course. She could feel his relief at stepping away. He ushered her mug over to the counter and asked the barista for a cup of his own as well. She watched him closely as he pulled out a few bills. She examined the repetitive wear of his wallet on his back pocket. She noticed the bevel of the outside heel of his shoes. Evidence of uncorrected supination and thriftiness. The money he offered her could be better spent. When Keith returned, he looked expectant, hopeful the delay might have delivered a verdict. He sipped his coffee. I'm happy to answer any questions, he smiled. Bethany found the way he forced himself to keep his gaze on her willful. She respected his determination and broke eye contact herself to see his index finger fidget the cuticle of his thumb, torn raw and red. Or. Maybe I can ask you a question, Keith said. What's holding you back? Why not sell it? He lifted his mug to his lips again. Something about this query settled it for Bethany. I'm sorry, she said. No deal. Keith set his mug down a little too hard. Coffee rushed over the edge of the cup and ran down the tilt of the table into his lap. Shoot, he said. He ran to retrieve some napkins, wiping first at the splash on his pants, and then mopping at the edges of the mug on the table. Bethany didn't move or speak. When Keith finally resettled, he said, Why? Bethany looked into Keith's eyes for the answer, but all she turned up was the realization that she didn't need to explain it to him. She felt her shoulders flinch, as if the decision mattered little to her no possibility of reversing it. There's nothing I can do to convince you? She shook her head and tightened her lips. Keith stood, a ball of wet napkins clenched in his fist. Okay, he said. You know where to find me if you change your mind. Blood swamped her heart. Have a good afternoon then. Keith turned away, but spun back again. I don't have it, but if I'd offered 100,000, would that have made a difference? He asked. No, she said. She held out her hand, hoping to end the conversation as it had begun, before she remembered the wad of napkins. She placed her palm back on the table. Then why? All right. Thank you, Joanne. Adrenaline rushed behind the name Joanne but Bethany maintained her composure. Keith walked away with purpose. He pulled open the door and Bethany watched through the window as he disappeared right and then crossed back left, changing his mind about where he was headed or unfamiliar with the neighborhood. Bethany wondered what it was Keith had wanted. She wondered what Joanne had to give. She wondered why it felt like it was her place to decide for both of them. (laughs) But it had all unfolded so easily. She took a last sip of her coffee and gathered her things. A woman in a polished pantsuit walked through the door, her eyes looking for someone. She asked at the counter about the man whom she was supposed to meet. Bethany let her fingers fall on the shoulder of the woman as lightly as possible and leaned in. Joanne? The woman's whole body pursed under Bethany's touch. Keep it, she whispered.
0: That was Helen Hong reading Any Other by Jack Gems. So in that piece, it's really the overeager buyer Keith who loses it. His chance to buy the heirloom, yes, plus a little of his dignity. And that's why God made eBay, so your unpleasant personality won't get in the way of acquiring precious heirlooms. The loss in our next story is part of its premise. It's called Noseless, and it's by the writer Namwali Serpell. She writes fiction, as with her novel The Old Drift, and nonfiction about everything from Game of Thrones to the history of the face. This piece was commissioned for Selected Short's first-ever short story collection, Small Odysseys, and because its narration is in the first-person plural, we asked a chorus of actors to perform it. I would love to list each of our readers' impressive accomplishments, but in the interest of time, let me list two conspicuously linked credits and tell me if you hear the pattern. Selected shorts: Stalwart, Zach Grenier, was in Fight Club and The Good Fight, Christina Alabado, American Psycho and American Idiot, Deborah S. Craig, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee and Elementary, and Calvin Leon Smith, The Smell of Smoke and High Maintenance. And here they are, performing Namwali Serpell's Noseless.
2: Our noses one by one.
3: The plague took things away from us and took us away from things. In the chaos, we didn't notice what
4: was missing at first.
5: Like when you move house and leave something behind that reveals itself to be essential months later. In the new, safer world after it was all over.
3: We looked back and realized that the plague had passed through every one of us to one degree or another. And it had stolen with it our sense of smell yes we lost our noses one by one the whole vivarium of sense on mute the sneeze the sniff breathing itself each has become a mere vibration a soundless strum over the synapses
2: how will we mark the weather now no smell of rain in the air no scorch of lightning No petrichor after the storm, no wetted stone, no pecora and chai as
5: you watch the downpour from the veranda. No
4: dewy grass, no astringent green breaking open in spring, no soft turning satin of lilac.
5: Rose.
4: Gardenia.
5: Jasmine, did you know that summer has a smell that changes with the sun's shape and light? inner-peeled dawn, creamy blur noon, the hot melt of sunset. We We can can see see all of this, but but can can no no longer longer smell it. it.
2: Nor the rustling leaves on mildly damp soil, that old book smell of autumn.
5: Nor
3: the crunchy, crisp, blue of winter, the holidays have blurred.
5: No fireworks, no wood fire, no candles. No
3: candy. No bouquets, no fir trees, no turkey, no Geese, no yams, no latkes, no dates, no incense, no nuts, no
4: raisins.
5: We've lost the luxury of seasonal distinction.
4: How we will Miss Sweets? Sugar in its granular spectrum, refined sweet, bitty brown sweet, dark soil sweet, choking sweet of cinnamon, hot sweet of ginger, seesawing sweet of cardamom, medicinal sweet of cumin.
2: How will Miss Salt, the smell of the sea, the taste of the sea, the salt of the sea, the salt of our sweat, or really the salt and the pepper?
5: Oh, how will Miss Peppers, that fighting ash with which we ember our tongues, even those tastes that are more fire than spice. Such intensities will be sorely missed, the vinegar of hot sauce, the great range of capsicums, the self-defeating Szechuan that numbs the tongue that would taste it.
3: We've lost not just taste, but the temporal mnemonics of taste, how each day once spun through a spectrum of scents depending on what we ate and when.
2: The ground coffee morning, the milky, silken morning, the buttery, pan-spitting, slightly singed morning, the mingled grain morning, the sour yogurt with tangy fruit, the tawny black char of toast,
4: the oniony noon, its umami and stews, the verdant fart of broccoli and cabbage, the dirt-rich mushrooms, lentils, and beans. The round, baked heat of all things maize. Tortilla, tamale, cornbread, sadsa, mishma, polenta. Arepa. The meaty flesh noon. The ooze and crackle of fat and gristle. The grain of meat. The pith. The marrow. The varietals of blood.
5: Red, pink, and brown
4: the slippery raw brine of sea creatures, the slender salad noon. Tomato, pea, carrot, spots of bright sweet. Lettuce and cucumber, mint, coriander, parsley, dill, any leaf that splits to cool freshness.
2: Afternoon fruits, the taste of their colors.
4: Green lime.
2: Yellow lemon.
4: Orange,
3: orange.
2: Autumn peach.
3: Purple grape.
2: Pink melon.
3: Blueberry.
2: Black. The
3: scandalous scarlet of pomegranate.
2: The fruits of good and evil, those dawn and dusk orbs. Fuji apple and Kent mango, juicy and tart, their skin the sky in transition. Tea time has vanished, the honeyed hue of the air,
5: the smell of long shadows, the sand of biscuit crumbs, the softness of vanilla. Heart flashes of strawberry, lemon, and cherry. The roasted nuts whose scent is riven with the sound of their skins rustling over tin and the crackling flames they require.
4: We'll miss a sense of supper, too, but it's less specific. Dinner always depended, was broadly democratic, all things fried and crisp all things starchy and sturdy, all things thickened with thyme, spice-plum leftovers, and often the stalwart potato.
2: What of the night, the velvet warm night, the chill, chilled night? That adult time of delight and dissipation.
4: An earthy, warm,
2: red, a
5: floral,
4: white, wine, the glint heat of whiskey. Clear-cut vodka, the rotted caramel of rum, the funk of weed, the musk of cigar, the backthroat bitterness of powder of pills, ground-cut snorted. Cigarette smoke, cigarette smoke, the harmonic it makes with your high, the polaroidal scent of insect wings, the ineluctable modality of sex.
5: There are other clocks to go by, but what is work without ditto ink and warm paper, without the staticky haze of computers? What is school without chalk dust and markers, without lip gloss and hormones, pink bubblegum and locker room funk? without rubber balls and the resin floors of gym class? What are cars without exhaust and leather, A.C. and pine? What are buses without rubber and glass, footprints and gas?
2: What are airplanes without stinky labs perfumed in hand wash, without reheated food, polyester and Velcro, dead air and too many people?
3: At least our bodies all smell the same now. No ammoniacal urine, no poisonous shit, no chocolatey blood, no coppery scab, no truffle of sweat,
4: no egg drop breath, no brackish snot, no vegetal fingernail crud, and no fragrant skin-warmed emollients to cover it up, either, except everything is Vaseline now. But no, even Vaseline is lost, that faintest waxy smear
2: At least capital has bared its arbitrary face. The idea that coins carry the weight of our work seems even sillier without the scent of minted metal.
4: Manhandle. Cash. And new dollar. Bills. The light plastic of credit cards. The glinty air of bling. All
0: this is gone.
4: And we just have to deal with it. Money is just numbers on a screen, and not even synesthetes can smell it anymore. Without our noses, we've become
3: soft and hard, porous and impervious, vulnerable to dangers, yet callous to pleasures. The future is murky. The smell of food burning, spoiling, and rotting.
2: Absent these warnings, how can we know things are about to go wrong? Fires romp eagerly, sewers flood unnoticed, Gunpowder and mustard gas, monoxides, dioxides. Nary
5: a warning hint of these coming disasters. Even small emergencies seem smaller. Dirty diapers to change, matzo ball soup for a cold, antiseptic to
4: clean up a spill. Is anything worth tending to anymore? The present is stretchy, listless, and wan.
2: We cannot find our way in our neighborhoods.
5: Perfumers have gone broke, confectioners have ceased spinning.
4: Bakeries have shut
3: their doors, beguiling wafts, now pointless. We're no longer a watch in a, no, a, no a, no a, a voluntary seduction volunteer- like a barricade, 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 the new road and road had and had roses, and next door.
2: Maybe this truly contingent future, this highly present present, will be better. More honest, more fair. But
3: the loss of the past smells sovereign realm. The loss of the past is irredeemable.
4: Roost's Madeline, his effect is moot. No biting a cookie to crack open a history.
5: Memories have become indefinite and shuffleable, a blank deck of cards. We'll soon live in a world where you'd never bother to remember.
4: The
3: flat suburban flavor of the giant foods on Green Spring Avenue in Pikesville, Maryland, circa 1989. The kids' vending machine on the left, just as you come through the sliding doors. Two tall red boxes with glass windows showcasing their goods. In one, a pebbled rainbow of gumballs, and in the other, clear plastic bubbles, each holding a treasure you can discover for only a quarter.
2: Go on. Slot the coin in. Turn the handle. Thunk. So that the bubbles tumble and settle and the hinged gate swings and you cup one in your palm. Wrangle its halves apart. Pop. And inside, take out a keychain with a hard blue creature you recognize from cartoons and a square white card wrapped in plastic.
5: Slither it open.
3: Let the plastic cover split. Slip the card out.
4: A picture of a strawberry. No need for instructions. Scratch it. Sniff it.
5: There it is.
4: There it is.
0: That was Calvin Leon Smith, Deborah S. Craig, Christina Alabado, and Zach Grenier performing Noseless by Namwali Serpell. It's probably no surprise to learn that piece was written in the middle of 2020, as COVID deprived many of their sense of smell. We spoke with one of the actors, Deborah S. Craig, about her take on the story.
2: It's really about what we've lost in the pandemic and just the sensations and memories and things that we've lost. And it was really, ironically, eye-opening for me to think about the sense of smells that we have lost when you lose your sense of taste and smell. And it made me really think about how our memories are intertwined by experiences that use all of our senses. And it was a great coming back into the world, thinking about what we experience as humans when we're not isolated in a room by
0: ourselves. That was Deborah S. Craig backstage at Symphony Space. When we return, Lauren Groff brings us the beach, adolescence, and unrequited love all at once. I'm Meg Wolitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wolitzer. In this show, we're listening to stories about things lost. But you shouldn't worry about deficits, at least where we're concerned. If you miss the stories from our first half, you can stream the Selected Shorts podcast anytime. Find it on your favorite podcasting platform or go to SelectedShorts.org and click on the subscribe button. And please let your friends and followers know so they don't lose out either. Our next tale of someone losing something is by Lauren Groff. She's the author of the novels Fates and Furies and Matrix, as well as story collections including Florida. She's got a way of making intimate relationships feel relatable and lyrically expansive at the same time. Whether her characters are adults or children, she treats them with equal seriousness and care. She builds a life detail by detail on the page, and then carefully and brilliantly excavates it. You'll see what I mean in this story about adolescent infatuation and what comes after. Reading the story is Crystal Dickinson. She's known for series including The Shy and lots of New York theater, such as Colored Water at the Public Theater. Here's Such Small Islands by Lauren Groff.
6: They came to the summer house in May. There was still a bite to the salty air and the hydrangeas clenched their fists, weary of blooming. Through the windows, the pool glinted malignantly at the edge of the beach. A tiny gardener moved his clipper hands down the hedge. Aura sat under the dining table in the last slab of ocean light as her mother, and Phyllis the housekeeper spoke in the kitchen. Because her mother was just coming into her glory at work, because Aura was sickly and taxing, Aura's half-sister on her father's side was coming to watch her all summer. Now her mother was asking the housekeeper to make sure the girl's bedroom would be ready when she arrived in the early morning. Then Aura watched her mother carry a glass of wine out to the veranda where dinner was cooling. She called, Aura, Aura, the anger growing in her voice, but Aura ignored her. She crept along with the lash of sunlight that swiftly diminished over the floor. The sky bled purplish orange. At last, her mother stopped calling, covered her face with both hands and gently screamed into them. In the morning, there was a strange voice downstairs when Aura slid in her socks down the stairs. She came into the kitchen to find her mother at the table in her suit, tapping at her phone with her thumbs. Beside her, a girl with lustrous black hair. Down to her hips, she was licking the sugar top off her split grapefruit. This was Augusta, but everyone called her Gus. Gus held out her arms, but Aura said, no, you're a stranger. Silly, of course, you know me. (laughs) Gus laughed. We're sisters. We saw each other all the time before our dad and your mom got divorced. But Aura's mother who brooked no fools, said that Aura had only been two then. Of course she couldn't remember, and their dad barely had time to see her. Then she smiled tightly, as if in conciliation, and said, you haven't been out to the island before. No, Gus said. My mom would never let me come. That's right, Aura's mother said, and in her face, Aura saw first dislike, then a slow victory because Gus was here. Aura's mother had won. She loved winning. Well, her mother said standing. As they discussed over the phone, she would be gone a lot this summer and there would be times she probably wouldn't make it back to the island for a few days at a time. Phyllis would take care of food and whatever else they needed. Her assistant had sent Gus the information about the Jeep or his medications, the beaches they could go to with their badges. Still, for good measure, she handed Gus a thick printout. Be good, love you, she said kissing her daughter's head. So fast, she was out the door, in the car, gone. Uncertainly, Aura looked at Gus. She was pretty. Aura saw her now. Her lips were thin, but she had a smile that spread so broadly it seemed to touch her tiny earlobes and her teeth gleamed like pearls. Don't worry, we'll figure out everything, little sis, Gus said and picked her up. Aura pressed her face into her neck and inhaled her marvelous smell like apples and pine trees and the kind of candies that look like colored glass that was when something in her began to burn. The days became bright and smooth. Gus's long limbs browned. Her black hair spread like a wing over Aura's face when in the afternoons, stinging with sun and salt and the tiny abrasions of sand, the girl went down for her nap. There were days of blousy pink peonies full of ants bike rides through the golden meadows to the children's beach, coconut sun lotion, Gus in a blue bikini on the pool float when Aura came yawning into the afternoon, rubbing sleep from her eyes. They ate strawberry ice cream, watching the sun set over the private beach. Aura refused to go to bed at night anywhere but Gus's bed, but woke in her own room with the rocking horse in the corner, gazing at her with boggled horror. One day, down on the sand as Aura wove strange landscapes out of bladder rag and eelgrass, Gus sighed and said, this is heaven. She sat up and opened a beer she'd stolen from the fridge and said, you're a lucky kid. Your whole life is what people like me pinch our pennies to have for a single measly week every year. Aura tried to think of what this would mean, but couldn't. But you are people like me, Aura said. Gus looked at her and smiled a little. Maybe, she said, I will be. Soon Aura's mother's absences went from just a few days at a time to four, then five days. Each night when she called to apologize, Aura heard the city bleating behind her and Aura felt relieved that she too wasn't in the city that her mother was. It's okay, Aura told her. Gus and me are perfect without you. Gus and I, honey. Honey. Her mother said, but absently. She hadn't even been listening. By mid June, they began to go to the beach cafe to eat dinner once or twice a week, and soon Gus had friends. The boys, who had ropey muscles in their legs from carrying trays over sand. The boys, who sat at the bar with their collars turned up against their sunburned cheeks. Gus leaned back in her chair in her jean cutoffs and bikini top and laughed up at those who came by to talk to her and played with her hair and drank the beers they slipped her because she wasn't yet legal to drink in public. When they rode their bikes home through the thick dark, she sang songs and hearing her made Aura feel as though the whole night were somehow bursting out of her the sleek marshlands covered with darkness, the cobbled streets, the giant pale moon, Gus singing and gliding in great smooth arcs back and forth across the dark path, her black hair flicking behind her body. But one morning, as Aura slid thumping down the stairs, There was a disturbance of voices, and she came into the breakfast room to find a boy in a pink shirt, soft with age, an expensive constellation of holes on one shoulder leaning close to Gus and murmuring. Phyllis put down the plates of eggs before them, shooting spikes out of her eyes. Thanks, Gus said in a strange voice. The housekeeper gave a sniff and went out. The boy saw Aura and said what weak withered shrimp is this because at his expensive college he was studying drama. Gus flushed and said too loudly my little sister and opened her arms and Aura clutched her hiding her face from the boy. There was a new smell to Gus, a swollenness to her lip that Aura wanted to pinch thin again. The boy was called Oz, short for Oscar. And when he finally walked off, Aura was relieved to have gotten rid of him, but she watched him from the front porch because Gus did and felt outraged when he went only to the house next door, a giant gray thing with turrets. Gus said in a low voice, Oh, I like him so much. Ora turned away to make a face. She wasn't surprised when he was back hours later and again they watched from the front porch as he jogged up the drive. Aura willed her eyes to hurt him. His giant limbs, his lacrosse hands, his bare shining chest. He had a fanny pack at his waist with a pin in it for his nut allergies. (laughs) It seems like that little bag should look stupid, Gus said as though to herself watching him. I don't know, he somehow pulls it off. Oz leapt up the steps, palmed Aura's head like a ball, came into the house and later kissed Gus in the pool for the entire time they thought she was napping. Now wasn't just Gus and Aura, it was Gus, and Aura, and Oz. He drove the kind of car that had no walls, so their whole bodies were terrifyingly exposed to the wind. He picked Aura up and threw her in the pool, though she screamed and kicked, and when she surfaced, wept. During hide-and-seek, he didn't even try to find Aura, just pressed Gus against the pool house while crouched in the hydrangeas. Aura ripped up handfuls of grass. He was too much, too large, too loud. Something about him ate up all the air and left others gasping. After Oz, Aura wasn't allowed to fall asleep in Gus's bed. She was bullied into sleep by that hateful rocking horse in her own room. At the 4th of July water fight in the center of town, Aura watched hopeful as the firefighters turned their great hoses in Oz's direction, but he wasn't knocked down. And when things became too wild, He tucked Aura under his arm as though she were a rugby ball and pushed through the crowds. When she couldn't stop crying at the indignity of being carried like that, Gus said in a hard voice, looks like someone needs her nap. Aura felt so wounded. She was inconsolable. And not even popsicles would help. That night in bed, Aura chanted an endless stream of all the terrible things in the world that she knew. Earthquakes, and snakes, and broken bones, and pinches, and car crashes, and heart attacks, and zits, and head lice. And she sent the black stream in the direction of Oz's huge, stupid house. But of course, when in the middle of the night, the noises woke her from Gus's room, They told her that she'd been with Gus just beyond her wall, not in his house all along. The coolness of early summer bled out and heat poured into the days like liquid in cups overflowing into the nights. Ora woke in her bedroom to see a glow in the window and knew it was a bonfire down at her private beach, that Gus had left the house to be down there with Oz and his friends and their booze and music, and that Ora's mother would be very angry if she knew. In the dawn, her face ugly in its puffiness, Gus went down with the trash bag that clanked when she dragged it back up to the garage. Ora watched her and saw how the pink flowers were all gone, and now the world was filled with aggressive yellow tiger lilies and daisies and sunflowers. She heard Gus come up the stairs, her voice and Oz's murmuring. And then they slept again, long past the time that Aura was supposed to have breakfast. Aura refined her list of terrible events until it felt like a terry ball choking her. Finally, Phyllis came up with a tray, muttering things under her breath that sounded like curses. Aura ignored the food and lay in her bed alone, her tears so hot they seared the skin of her temples as they fell. At last, Gus came for her, brushing her wet hair, a floral dress showing the outline of her body as she stepped through the bands of sun from the windows. Hello, sleepyhead, she said. You slept so late, it's almost lunchtime. We're going on a picnic. And she leaned over Aura and dripped her wet hair on the girl's face until Aura loosened her anger and let it fly away. She reached up to Gus's face, the wide smile and teeth, the eyebrows like birds' wings, and took her cheeks into her hands and squeezed them until Gus's mouth puckered fishily. The day had been reset. The hydrangeas wore great heavy blue-green globes. The sunlight was honey. Best of all, there was no Oz with them when they rode their bikes to the sandwich shop. Every part of Aura rejoiced that this would be a day like the beginning of summer, slow and clean and soft, just Gus and her, their serious talks and the long, gentle silences. But there he was, Oz, waiting at the store with his bare chest and fanny pack his enormous feet in his flip-flops. Ahoy, pathetical knit! he said, tugging at one of Aura's braids. She felt the bitter ball rise into her throat again. Inside, they picked out cut watermelon, beers, a cherry soda for Aura. Don't tell your mom she hates sugar, Gus said, twinkling. And fun, Oz said, but Gus hushed him. Ora turned away in hatred. She watched the boy in the kitchen making their sandwiches through the vitrine where the salads waited lonely under their shining wrap. The boy made Aura's peanut butter and jelly first, then wrapped it in white paper. When he went to spread the mustard on Gus's and Oz's sandwich, he took up the knife that he had used for Ora's, absentmindedly, wiped it on a cloth and used it to spread and flatten and cut. Aura thought of the peanut butter still on the knife. How it was now on the bread. The world came to a hot point in her. The boy wrapped up the sandwiches, put tape on them, checked them out. Ora watched. She knew. She said nothing. The ride out to the hidden cove was hot. There was a smashed cat with blood on its teeth at the intersection and it smelled like panic. Oz was impatient with how slowly Aura rode and kept shouting, Come on, Pokey! over his shoulder. Aura looked only at the blacktop rushing by and emptied her head of thoughts and made her legs go even slower. At last, they got off their bikes. The ocean was a strange dark blue and the wind had picked up and was blowing tiny pieces of sand in their faces. They climbed down the cliffs to the beach where Gus spread the blanket. At this time of the day, the beach was in shadow and the little caves in the cliffs seemed endlessly deep. Oz kicked off his shoes and dropped the fanny pack and sprinted into the waves, and soon he stood shining with water and saying, "'Come on, Gus, my sweet.' Gus flushed and bit back a laugh and told Aura to make her a giant sandcastle, then took off her dress and joined him, and they held hands until they were past where the breakers crashed in the smoother waves beyond. Then their heads were close together. Ora knew they were doing that thing again, even though she was there to see them, even though they had left her all by herself on the beach and she was still a little child and should never be left alone. The thing in her grew so large it blinded her. She began to dig with her metal shovel wildly like a dog throwing sand everywhere on the blanket, on the basket of food, on her clothes, on their shoes, on their cell phones. She dug and dug and hours or even days probably passed, she thought, until she was in a hole so deep her eyes were at water level and there were heaps of sand everywhere. At last Gus and Oz stood over her hole panting and dripping, saying how incredible it was that such a tiny girl could dig so fast in such a deep hole too. Gus shook out the blanket and unearthed the basket. Oz pulled Aura out of the hole and into the colder wind. She saw with satisfaction that the sand had buried everything. Clothing, shoes, fanny pack, cell phones, lunchtime he said i'm starved ora stood with a finger in her mouth tasting salt and sand washing gus unpack the forks the watermelon the drinks when she took the sandwiches out aura yelled not hungry and ran off toward the caves and the cliffs gus called after her but oz said she wants to be like that just let her go in aura's cave The stone was cold and smooth and it was chillier here, though out of the wind. There were seashells heaped in a corner, a pulsing black to her back. Way up the beach, Gus and Oz were tiny, the size of her pinky finger. She couldn't hear them or see what they were doing. She watched, but only out the corner of her eye. For a long time, Nothing happened, and the knowledge she'd held like a little flame in her dwindled and almost blew out. But then, suddenly, Gus leapt up. She began kicking frantically at the mounds of sand. She fell to her knees and dug with her hands. She ran back to Oz. She bent over him. She ran off. Oz slowly laid his body down. Aura closed her eyes. The cool rock cupped her. The seagulls screamed. The waves beat a steady time. She didn't mean to, but she fell asleep. When she woke, it was much later. The beach had filled with afternoon light. The blanket was empty, and a red light was flashing up where they had parked their bikes. Up and down the beach, there were strangers walking along, calling her name. Aura, they called. Aura! But none of them was Gus. Not one wore her hair flicking in the wind, her cool face, her long smile. So Aura stayed quiet, crouched. She was just a tiny thing, after all, at least when measured against the weight of so much rock. She was just a little nothing beside the grasping, hissing ocean, stretched all the way to the edge of the sky.
0: That was Crystal Dickinson performing Lauren Groff's story, Such Small Islands. People talk about the freedom of being a child, but I think we need to recognize the loneliness, too. Kids aren't usually in couples. Best friends can help, and twins have that twin thing going on. When an intriguing person turns their attention to you, the experience can be powerful. But if you get abandoned, well, you may need to find a way to restore equilibrium, which may also mean getting your revenge. We caught up with Crystal Dickinson after her performance of the story at Symphony Space.
6: It is so haunting. What I always love about whenever I perform selected shorts or listen to them, there's some surprise, some twist, some turn that you didn't expect. And then this one is a real doozy because Aura is a young child who makes a really terrible, life-threatening decision that you just wouldn't expect. But what I love about it is what we get to understand about children, and especially during this time, that it's difficult for them to process hard feelings. And in this story, we see that Aura's life at home, no one's really given her the tools to explain if she's hurt or not feeling seen or not feeling loved. I love the story so much.
0: That was Crystal Dickinson. Lauren Groff's Such Small Islands was also published in Selected Shorts' new book of short stories, Small Odysseys and Dickinson's performance was part of a 12-hour-long celebration of Small Odysseys and Selected Shorts at Shorts's home theater of Symphony Space in New York City. As part of that show, Selected Shorts also commissioned filmmakers, dancers, musicians, and other artists to create what we called companion pieces, or artwork that was in some way inspired by one of the stories in Small Odysseys. One of our artists, the Oregon-based musician Laura Gibson, Chose to create a song based in part on Groff's story. She's a singer songwriter with albums such as Empire Builder and Goners, and she did NPR's very first tiny desk concert. She plays with a backing band sometimes and solo sometimes, but this was one of her first compositions with a device called a looper. I was backstage at this performance, and it was mesmerizing. This is Laura Gibson performing Such Small Islands.
7: New words, too bright for the morning, your floral dress. I felt a beast in my chest, I was, but a small and harmless thing. There was the ark of your body, the salt air, the marsh, and all wilderness. Settling furious into the darkness, I felt the night sliding out of me. When you let me drink from your cup, I felt my thirst could kill some. a blade sweetened the poison i took to the shade hard on the cloth of my blouse i felt the beast clawing out i was but a small and harmless thing. I was, after all, a small and helpless thing.
0: That was Laura Gibson performing a song inspired by Lauren Groff's story, Such Small Islands. And with that, our look at loss comes to a close. Now, if you'll forgive me, I can't seem to find my phone, even though I just had it. Uh, Would you call it for me? Oh, thank you. Wouldn't you know, it was in my hand the whole time. Of course it was. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. If you, too, want to be part of our show, then please check out the Selected Shorts Writing Contest. Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner, and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. $1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story on Selected Shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop. This year's judge is Carmen Maria Machado, author of Her Body and Other Parties, In the Dream House, and more. Visit SelectedShorts.org and submit by March 1, 2024, for your chance to win. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sherina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.